Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. Throughout All Things Are Possible, you're going to see Lev Shestov talking about morality, and most of his discussions of it are both quite involved and also what we could call genealogical unmasking to some degree, saying here's what's really going on with morality. It looks like it's on the up and up, like it provides us with a total basis for doing all the things that we ought to do, but really here's the function that's going on. And I want to say a few things right off the bat before we start looking at some of the passages and putting together kind of a composite picture. To begin with, it's important to remember that Shestov is essentially a second generation existentialist. He is somebody who not only has studied extensively Dostoevsky and Nietzsche, both of whom have a lot of thoughts about the nature of morality and how it's often not what it pretends to be, but who's actually written on them by this point as well and published works about them. He's also, you know, drawing on other authors, and he's somebody who knows the history of philosophy quite well. So you'll see him talking about Kant, for example, talking about Plato, Aristotle, Hegel, all sorts of other figures. So he's using this sort of panoramic picture of how morality has been treated. And we should point out too that the existentialists were not the first to discover that morality sometimes is actually a cover for other things. The second thing that we need to keep in mind is he's not going to provide us with a definition of morality. He's not going to provide us with a general theory of morality. That would be in, in part besides the point, and that would be to accede to some moral demands of theorizers, you might say. So if your temptation is to say to Shestov, hey, hey, you've got to tell me what you mean by morality, he would say, no, actually, I don't. There's no moral requirement that I do that, nor is that a requirement of intelligent people exploring some phenomena. That's you imposing something in a bullying kind of way, to use another term that he's going to use later on. As a matter of fact, as it turns out, morality doesn't name just one single thing. It names a number of different coordinated things. And again, this is similar to what existentialists like Nietzsche have said about matters like this. So what are we discussing here? We're, we're looking at how people engage in moralizing. We're looking at what the moralists say. We're looking at how people apply rules of morality to each other, all sorts of other connected phenomena. And we can distinguish some different themes. We can talk about morality as what he calls utilitarian, and we'll get into that in just a moment. Morality is what we could call retributive and secretly selfish. We can also talk about morality. He talks about this a little bit less in this book, but morality is a sort of class distinction, a way of showing that you're somebody important. And he also discusses morality in relation to what he calls a fabric of fear. And here we get to what our attitude might be or ought to be in relation to all these demands that are put on us and this sort of capital M morality that's constantly thrust on us. And then we also have a really interesting passage where he talks about what might place things in a different perspective. 
So when we're talking about morality as utilitarian, he doesn't mean that everybody is engaging in utilitarian moral theory coming from Jeremy Bentham or John Stuart Mill. As a matter of fact, he's using it in a, in a very broad sense that people were using it at the time to talk about morality as being something that has its origins in what's good for society writ large, what's good for the social group. You might think if you're somebody who reads 19th century literature about somebody like Herbert Spencer, who nobody really reads anymore, but who would have exactly the same sort of idea. It's the kind of people that Nietzsche was attacking in the genealogy of moral as those English psychologists who see in the notion of moral obligations and moral codes, just what is to the benefit of most people. He talks about this in noting a, a sort of interest in contemporary philosophy, what he calls the normative theory, which has taken such hold in Germany and Russia. And he says that what's really going on with this normative theory is that it amounts to this. Philosophical research is not a search after truth, but a conspiracy among people who dethrone truth and exalt instead the all binding norm. So this is more than just ethics in, in the, the narrow sense. This is like how we conduct ourselves in general. Everything should be normalized. Everything should be following this all binding norm, universality. And so here's where he says something really interesting. The task is truly ethical. Morality always was and always will be utilitarian and bullying. Its active principle is, he who is not with us is against us. And so that is an interesting way to think about what people mean by morality. It's a code by which people keep other people in line. And there's another really interesting discussion that crystallizes a lot of other chapters where he's talking about, you know, the need to provide consistency for other people. So in chapter 100 of part one, he says, it's clear to any impartial observer, practically every person changes their opinion 10 times a day. Nobody has ever doubted it was a, that it was a vice to be unstable in one's opinions. Three quarters of our education goes to teaching us most carefully to conceal within ourselves the changeableness of our moods and judgments. A person who cannot keep their word is the last of people never to be trusted. Likewise, a person with no firm convictions, it's impossible to work together with them. We want people who we, we know how they're going to, to think, how they're going to behave, what they're going to say. Even if they're scoundrels, we want them to be consistent scoundrels. We want to understand why the screwed upness of their character produces these sorts of effects. Now here's where he says something really interesting. Morality here as always making towards utilitarian ends, right? Things that will be good for the majority issues, the eternal principle, thou shalt remain true to thy convictions. People have to be what they are. Now this, see, this goes beyond just like rules of conduct or ethical principles or anything like that. It has to do with the entirety of a person's life and demeanor and character and where they fit in. Once they've established something, unless they've got a really good reason to change it, they must stick with that because we want them to, because that's how things ought to be. Well, this is all morality. This is all uh, a way in which society imposes its demands on other people. And he says, in cultured circles, this commandment is considered so unimpeachable. Men are terrified even to appear inconstant in their own eyes. They become petrified in their beliefs and no greater shame can happen that they should be forced to admit that they've altered in their 
convictions, right? So that's an interesting side of it as well. This is morality as utilitarian. You know, we demand a sort of constancy in social life. We want to be able to rely on people. Everyone should stay, as we say, in their lane. Or if they're getting out of their lane, it's when there's something that allows them to do so and and we, we give them permission for that. So that's a, you might say, neutral side to morality. It's going to stifle innovation and creativity to some degree. And it's also going to, you know, introduce fears for people of appearing inconsistent. But it's not that big of a problem. Here we also, with a second theme, get to something that's a bit more problematic about morality, which is supposed to be for good, right? Shostov says that morality also has its roots in retribution, in revenge, in vengeance. And so we look at section 34. He says, moral people are the most revengeful of mankind. They employ their morality as the best and most subtle weapon of vengeance. And that might be coming out of Nietzsche's mouth or out of the mouth of one of Dostoevsky's characters. Could it not, right? It could also be coming from various cynical philosophers, people who are talking about morality all the time, who arrange the world through moral categories. They're really about vengeance. They're really about doing something. And now he points out, you know, gives an argument here. They're not satisfied with simply despising and condemning their neighbor themselves. They're upset about something. They see somebody, you know, watering their lawn during the middle of a drought. That's a bad thing that you're doing. That is a bad thing, right? It certainly goes against, you know, being a good member of society, but they take it personally. That jerk, look at them over there doing that thing. In this case of some people who are particularly prudish and ascetic, it might even be, look at those people over there having fun. I can't imagine what they're doing there. This is awful, right? People do behave that way. And there's all sorts of rules that you can like apply to people. And if the rules don't cover it, you can find a principle that covers it as well. There's no law against that, but you're still doing the wrong thing. Now here's where it gets really interesting. And this is why Shestoff says that they are the most revengeful of humankind. They don't just want to condemn their neighbor themselves. They want the condemnation, as he says, to be universal and supreme. And there's two aspects to this universal and supreme. Supreme means it overrides anything else. There's no excuse. There's no justifying exception in this case. And it's universal. We want everybody to condemn this person. Everyone should say that this person is bad. So they want everyone else to condemn that person. That's one side of it. And they'll often get angry at you if you don't condemn quickly enough or don't condemn in the right way or for the right reasons. But they also want the offender's own conscience to be against them. Then only are they fully satisfied and reassured, he says. And now how often do you actually get this? Pretty rarely. I mean, you can get compliance from people where they'll say, yes, yes, I did the wrong thing. I'm sorry for doing it. But in their heart of hearts, they're thinking, you friggin' jerk calling me out on this. Look at you, you hypocrite. And you're not getting the result that you want. But morality in people like this is really looking to crush the person. As he said earlier, it's a kind of bullying right? There's another really interesting discussion. I'm going to jump right away to 64 where he says, moral indignation is only a refined form of ancient vengeance. Once anger spoke with daggers, now words will do. Happy is the man who loving and thirsting to chastise his offender is appeased when the offense is punished. 
on account of the gratification it offers to the passions. Morality, which has replaced bloody chastisement, will not easily lose its charm. So condemnation of people joining in on saying, these people are bad. Look at how wrong they are heaping opprobrium upon them, calling them names. This is part of the moral impulse, according to, to Shestov. It's a way of attaining ancient vengeance. It also has some other nice features to it. Nice in, in being a little bit facetious there. And he discusses this in chapter 11 of part two, which is entitled, In Defense of Righteousness. He says, inexperienced and ingenious people see in righteousness merely a burden which lofty people have assumed out of respect for law or some other high and inexplicable reason. But a righteous person has not only duties, but rights. What does following the rules, being a moral person, what does that get you? You can say, well, I'm happy with my conscience, but it also allows you to engage in this condemnation of other people. He says, when the law is against him, he has to compromise, but how rarely does the law desert him? He says, no cruelty matters in him as long as he does not infringe the statutes. No, he will actually ascribe his cruelty as a merit to himself because he acts out of no personal considerations, but in the name of sacred justice. And this can fit in perfectly well. Morality can be retributive and self-centered and a person can lie to themselves and everybody else and say, oh, no, 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 I don't want to hurt the other person. I am hurting them, of course, but I just want to make sure that justice is done. I am speaking on behalf of society or the victim or whoever else. The principle of the matter requires that I do this, this thing to the other person. And he says, no matter what he may do, once he's sanctioned, he sees in his actions only merit, merit, merit. Modesty forbids him to say too much, but if you're to let go, what a luxurious panegyric he might deliver to himself. And he says, the nature of virtue demands it. A person must rejoice in their morality and ever keep it in mind. After that, people declare it's hard to be righteous. Whatever the other virtues may be, certainly righteousness has its selfish side. And he's saying that, that a lot of people use morality essentially as a tool to attain their own selfish and vengeance-driven ends. Quite likely true if, if you consult your own experience. You might find a little bit of that in yourself or in others. A little bit later, he talks about morality as kind of a class distinction thing. He's got this discussion, which is entitled Noblesse Oblige. And what is Noblesse Oblige? It's what the upper classes were supposed to be doing. It means that if you actually have a higher station, you're supposed to take care of those below you. And you do it kind of in your own way on your own time, but you're, you're supposed to do it. So like if you were in ancient Athens and you had a ton of money, you don't get to just keep all your ton of money to yourself. You put on a choral performance or a play, or you buy a trireme for the city. And if you don't, then people are going to be like, that person is not living up to their, their duties. But you get to decide what you're going to do with it. Maybe you dedicate something to, to the temple. You know, Maybe you provide a common dinner for everybody. But you're supposed to do something. And so he says, the moment of obligation, compulsion, duty, and that moment described by Kant as the essential, almost the only predicate of moral concepts, 
serves chiefly to indicate Kant was modest in himself and in his attitude towards all whom he addressed, perceiving in all people being subject to the ennobling effect of morality. Morality could like make us better. When we're moral beings, we do things for other people without expecting something in return, without using it as a tool of, of vengeance, right? He says, noblesse oblige is a motto not for the aristocracy, which recognizes in its privileges its own instant duties, but for the self-made wealthy parvenus who pant for an illustrious title, the nouveau riche, as we call them, the people who didn't grow up with the proverbial silver spoon in their mouth and knowing what their, their obligations are. They take on those obligations, why? Well, he says, they've been accustomed to telling lies, to playing poltroon, swindling, and meanness, and the necessity for speaking the truth impartially, bravely facing danger, freely giving of their fortunes, scares them beyond measure. They're not used to doing that sort of thing. They're not used to behaving in a noble way. So he says, it's necessary they should repeat it to themselves. They lie to themselves about why they ought to do this. And then to their children in whose veins the lying, sneaking blood still runs, lest they forget, you must not tell lies. You must be open, magnanimous. And he says, this is kind of silly, but noblesse oblige. So sometimes morality can be something that is not just being used as a tool, but it actually constrains the person against themselves. And here's where we get to another really interesting discussion. He begins by talking about the old adage, man is a wolf to man, homo homini lupus. And he says, this is one of the most steadfast maxims of eternal morality. We are worried about our neighbors doing bad stuff to us. And so one reason why we have morality is to keep them from doing anything to us. And then we in turn say, we're not gonna do that stuff either. And he says that that fear is just, we are so poor, so weak, so easily ruined and destroyed. How can we help being afraid? And then he says, and yet behind danger and menace, there's usually hidden something significant, which merits our close and sympathetic attention, but fear's eyes are big. We see danger, danger early. And here's the, the real upshot. He says, we build up a fabric of morality inside which as in a fortress, we sit out of danger all of our lives. So we do it to ourselves. We moralize ourselves because of our fear of the neighbor and perhaps fear of what we might do as well. And this constrains us, this restricts us. The last thing that I wanted to bring up in terms of this, you know, rather, let's call it skeptical view on morality that Shestoff is evincing, which might put things in perspective. He's not against goodness. He's not against ethics. He's not against, you know, doing the right thing. He's just saying that maybe morality doesn't structure things the way that we, we think it should. And it allows too much openness for people to use it and abuse it. He talks about what if Christ was going to show up today? This is in chapter 67. You might think about that song, what if God was one of us, which if I remember the way the verses go, a slob like one of us <laughs> shows up and we don't know that it's it's God and there's a big surprise he has a really interesting thing that he says here he says the Pharisee in the parable fulfilled all that religion demanded of him he kept his fast paid his tithe we're talking about the case where the Pharisee is you know congratulating himself in the temple for doing all of the the requirements fulfilling all the moral obligations that were also religious obligations Meanwhile, there's a tax collector. Tax collectors are despised because they're agents of the Roman Empire. And he's over there and he's beating his breast and he's saying, have mercy on me, Lord, a sinner. He's saying that he, he's actually screwed up. And then Christ in the parable says that guy was justified, the person who condemned himself. 
that one who thought that he was righteous was not justified. And so when imagine that you're at the time when this story is told. He says, everybody thought that this guy was righteous, including the Pharisee himself. The judgment of Christ came as the greatest surprise to him. He had a clear conscience. He did not merely pretend before others to be righteous. He believed in his own righteousness. Suddenly he turns out to be guilty, awfully guilty. But if the conscience of a righteous person does not help them to distinguish between good and evil, how is he to avoid sin? And then Shestoff says, what does Kant's moral law mean? The law which was consoling as the starry sky. If Christ came again, he might condemn the serene philosopher for his very serenity. The possibilities that we have things wrong and that there could be some sort of revelation that we are fundamentally screwed up. Even when we're practicing morality, we've gotten things wrong. That could always happen. What a surprise that would be. How would we react to that? Would we go out to greet it and say, this is really a shock. I need to rethink things. Or would we persecute that person? Would we use morality as a tool against them? Would we say, shut up. You can't change anything at this point. It's a good question, isn't it? And so here's, you know, this is not the only things that Shestas says about morality. There's, there's more contained in this work. There's more contained in his larger corpus. But these are some of the main points about his views on morality and how it impacts our lives and connects up with philosophy. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.